Hello everyone. Today I have my first guest. Uh, he is a an amazing guest, Frank King. He is a comedian, uh, the mental health comedian. He's a former writer for The Tonight Show uh, who now speaks on suicide prevention and uh, in his uh, bio summary also adds he knows what the barrel of his gun tastes like. Um, I'm going to link everything in the show notes below and I really encourage you to check it out. A couple notes on the episode. I am extremely angry. The last about 10 minutes of our conversation got uh, chopped off by shitty uh, recording uh, process. And then there's a couple minutes where the volume's a little iffy in the beginning. So bear with me. I'm so angry. We had some good stuff uh, after the recording got cut. Um, but all I can say is just definitely check out Frank, uh, Frank King and his TEDx talks are amazing and he's doing great work and he, uh, was a very gracious guest, um, to, uh, to join me for this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Uh, we now welcome the uh, mental health comedian Frank King. Frank, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Um, how are you doing? Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, I want you to know I didn't have a choice. It was kind of a plea bargain that I signed up for. It was jail <laughs> or join Jeff on the podcast. And I thought, uh, okay. Well, the, okay. J- jail might have been a better choice. It's mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Um, so I'll be honest, I reached out to you initially, um, I just read your bio and thought it interesting, I love, you know, comedy and mental health is, is something obviously that's intriguing and suicide prevention and all that stuff. Um, when you, when you responded that you'd come on, I, I quickly became the biggest Frank King fan on the planet because I went and watched your TEDx talks, uh, and oh my goodness, uh, I, and I'll have them all linked on the podcast uh, uh, when I when I post this. Uh, it spoke to me, uh, and I, I know you've probably heard this hundreds of times, but uh, spoke to me so much, like, oh my God, there's someone else who has these same things that I've never even, even to a, a, a therapist, I wouldn't verbalize because I thought, eh, this is a little too kooky, I think. So, <laughs> you get locked down for three days, you say the wrong thing to a therapist. <laughs> well, and that's honestly that's that's probably part of it. It's almost uh almost an act when you <laughs> that you put on sometimes with a therapist, I feel. Yeah. Cuz you know, depending on what state you're in, if you mention you're having thoughts of suicide, they're duty bound by law to take in front of a judge and decide if you deserve an involuntary detention order. So, you got to be very careful. I yeah. I think that's a mistake. I think if they allow people to give voice to their thoughts and feelings surrounding suicide that maybe more people would be forthcoming they knew they weren't going to get locked down uh, right and not uh, uh, not making it so, such a taboo issue I think would would make exactly. a big deal and that's and that's part of why I thought you know I've, uh, I, I I marketing this as a comedy podcast and we'll we'll start with that stuff but oh, yeah. uh, definitely worthy of getting more serious uh, and talking about the, those other uh, issues so um i guess to start now you've been in the comedy business for uh almost three decades now right 30 
35 years. Started the day after Christmas, 1985. Oh. <laughs> on the road with my girlfriend, then shortly my wife, for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Club to club to club for seven years and change. Wow. That's, that's a... Oh, oh my God! And I worked with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Ron White, Foxworthy, Ellen, Rosie, um, Kevin James, Adam Sandler. You know, back when they were just comics, and uh, it was an amazing time to be a comic. Yeah. Now you, you you shifted, or I don't know, did you did you shift to? Because I you wrote for the Tonight Show for twenty years. Is that right? Yeah. When I was first on the road, Jay was just the permanent guest host. Mm-hmm. Johnny would Johnny would pull up on a Friday night, tell his staff I'm taking next week off, which Mr. Jay was responsible for four nights because Monday was Best of Carson rerun. Was responsible for four nights, eighteen jokes per monologue. So he started hiring road comics under contract to turn in topical jokes. So I was sending in a dozen, two dozen jokes a day. You know when he got when he was going to be doing a week, and then when he got the show for real. They let most of the contract players go, but I, they kept me on and a couple other guys. And so we continued to write, you know, uh, on on contract ten ninety nine, you know, where we get, got paid on. It was it was jokes on spec. If he if he, if he used it, we got paid. Oh, so nice. yeah, Jay, that was that was the best tenure. But of course, with my age, I I just turned thirty four. I guess it's either Leno or Fallon. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but, and high school, I one of the things my parents always went to bed. It, after Leno had his monologue and then his little little act right after that, whatever that was, that was that was their bedtime. So that was every night in high school, my my week weekday routine. Yeah, that's called a desk piece. Jay would do a desk piece after his monologue, where he had pictures or you know signs or books or whatever something right. he could do from sitting, you know, seated. Yeah, he he's a. Uh, well, he's, he's he's still going. I know he's he's acting now. I guess at least a he's, little bit. Got the show on CNBC. Jay Garage. Now you uh, and I know this from the TEDx talks. I've always been curious. Uh, you did? Did you do a lot of comedy on cruise ships? Yeah, I was on. I worked on cruise ships. Uh, the last recession. I told a friend of mine, another comic, who I'd helped get into the corporate comedy world and out of the club comedy. It was a woman, and club comedy, very difficult for anybody, but for women especially. And so I told her one spring, I go, look, I don't have any cruise work this summer, and, you know, we've declared bankruptcy, and I'm going to have to get a job selling insurance again. She goes, you are not. (laughs) Uh, She said, my my cruise agent has a showcase. Somebody just dropped out. It's in Atlanta. We were living in the Northwest, as we are now. So you fly yourself down there, you get that last audition spot. And and so I went down and auditioned to work cruises. And uh, the last 10 years, uh, during the Chapter 7, you have 10 years. You know, it doesn't come off your credit for 10 years. Right. <laughs> uh, so that 10 years, though, cruise work kept us, a, pardon the pun, afloat. <laughs> I was doing 12 to 16 weeks a year on the boats. I've been to all seven continents, including Antarctica twice. And... You know, all over the world, and it's it's. I mean, I enjoy it. It's. I don't like being away from home, but you know, you're on a luxury cruise ship. Um, Paul in America, they always give you a window. The gym steps away. There's a grill from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the keto diet, so they grill all the chicken I yeah. asked for. <laughs> so yeah, so it was. Um, and you know, an older crowd because club. When I started clubs, probably the average age of somebody coming to a club is 23. 
and I'm 64 now, and probably the age of the person going to the club is 23. So the cruise ship audience was more my um, generation. So it was, and, and for some reason, I did I did better with the older um, cruisers. I used to do 10 days on the 30, 60, 90, 115 day cruises because those are definitely older, wealthier people if you can take 115 days and cruise around the world. Mm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I always, I've, I've only gone on two cruises. I live in Florida. I'm 20 minutes from a port. So you'd think I'd probably get on more because I, I love them. But I always thought that, that I- unless I'm missing something, it seems like one of the greatest gigs. Just it's a vacation and you have to work a little bit. As long as you don't bomb. I think that would, <laughs> that could oh. cause problems. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is a great gig. Especially now on Carnival, they make you work two and three shows a night, six days a week. So and you live, mm. you're living down below the waterline. Uh, so it's not the greatest gig, but the Holland America, a little higher in line. Like I said, I always got a room with a, with a view and I was doing two shows, maybe four in seven to 10 days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> not was, bad if you can get it. <laughs> no. And I, I love what I really liked about it was all the downtime in my cabin, catching up on all the work I never have time for. And sure, I would take a, you know, like a suitcase full of, uh, let's do my taxes. And, you know, so that that's what, and like I said, the gym is steps away. I'd work out every day for an hour and a half, two hours. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it's never going to happen again because, you know, because I had a little trouble coming back from Cambodia last February uh, when I became, became a worldwide pariah. But, um, are you aware of that? Did you know I had a little trouble with the... No. What's... Uh... Oh, well, open your browser there. Open another browser window. And type in Frank King Comedian Quarantine. And just see what comes up. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think the first the first one is probably Time Magazine. <laughs> that yep, tells you how, that's how it. Yeah. bad it got. Yeah, everybody, because I was I was there at ground zero on the pandemic. We sailed out of Singapore on February 2nd. Our ship did not allow anybody who'd been to mainland China in the last two weeks to get on. So nobody on my ship, none of us, you know, crew, officers, passengers, 2,500, not one case of COVID. The Diamond Princess sailed from the same port, same day, allowed people on from mainland China, and they were ravaged. By, but the problem is because the the ships were so close, you know, geographically, right? And in area, people conflated the two ships. So when I got back to Seattle and the CDC cleared me to come back in the country, uh, I made the mistake of speaking to the press. And even though I told them I'd never been quarantined, although I joked about jumping quarantine, I'd never been quarantined. Yeah. Every article you'll read says comedian jumps quarantine. Right. Yes, that's what it says. <laughs> so I had I had to change my home phone number and deactivate three social media accounts and handle the death threats. Ooh, this this has made people crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, this is this is one of the ways I handle the death threats. Here you go. See if I can make. Can you see this? Oh wow! Yeah, I was preparing. That's that's that that time in February. That's early February last year. I was preparing for my second natural bodybuilding contest. So I'm in the mass. I'm in the 60. masters. <laughs> I'll I'll have to stay on the keto diet. I, I I started it three weeks ago, and I'm like, oh, this is this is getting rough. But uh, that might inspire me to keep on going. <laughs> well, if, if I can make a suggestion, that's a combination of keto and intermittent fasting. 
Gotcha. I, I, I fast for 20, 23 hours, eat one hour a day, and then don't eat again until the following day. That made that made a, a great deal of difference in the in the body fat and the vascularity and the you know whatever. So yeah, that that's... anyway that that was my. <laughs> that's why I probably won't be doing any more cruising because I got in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would guess that uh, people will. The way people are nowadays, they throw us, they throw a stink if they see you stepping foot on a cruise ship. Well, and the cruise line was upset because they got a lot of blowback. How could you let the guy leave the hotel if he was quarantined? And again, I wasn't quarantined, and I was off the clock. My contract was up, and I had gigs to do the following week. I flew, my, I flew myself home on my dime. Mm. And, and no, but nobody cares about that anyway. That's, no, that's it's, my, it's all about headlines. It's, yeah. it's it's not about facts. It's not about common sense. No. It's just headlines. Clicks and, eye, clicks and eyeballs. Yep, yep. That's ex- exactly it. Uh, so, ha- I mean, kind of touching on that, have you been able to do a lot uh, with with comedy? With uh, Again, I'm in Florida, so we actually have been open for quite a long time. We can go to comedy clubs, uh, which is lucky because it's something I was just starting – I decided I was going to start trying to break my way into comedy right as the world shut down. It's like, oh, good call. That was a message for me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh no, he's going to do what? Oh <laughs> no. But um, uh, I've been doing virtual keynotes one a month on average. Uh, I don't do much comedy anymore. Cruise ship was pretty much my last comedy gig. I mean, if, if a sure. corporate client says, "Frank, look." They're speaking on suicide prevention the next day. Do you mind coming in and doing forty-five minutes of stand-up and? The uh, awards banquet? Oh, absolutely. Be happy to. So, yeah, about a, about a virtual keynote a month. And I don't know if you can see my subliminal TEDx message behind yeah. me here, but <laughs> I decided that, well, my, a friend of mine is also sort of my business manager said, look, Frank, I don't know when live events are coming back. You need to ramp up your TEDx coaching marketing. Had about I had five, six clients in, you know, when, when, when it broke out. And I think I'm up to 20 clients now. Um, coaching them to get TEDx's and and two of my clients just got got a TEDx on their first application one's going to University of Essex in London to give a TEDx wow. so how difficult got, beg pardon how difficult is it to, to get one well now's the time to apply I the the gentleman is going to England and the young woman who would have gone to Providence Rhode Island last week but it snowed so she did it by Zoom they they got their they got the TEDx on first application, which is unusual. And there were only, there were only seven people in both the TEDx events, which is unusual. Normally, they have at least 12. So that tells me what's happening probably is people don't think they're going on. Right. So not as many people are applying. So the pool of, of applicants, decent applicants, is probably smaller. Otherwise, both those events would have had 12 speakers, I'm sure. So now's a great time to apply for a TEDx. The hard part is... The average TEDx committee gets 100, 200 applications. So how do you stand out? So that's what I do for my clients. I help them because whatever you put in those first couple of blanks on the application, better better be good. You know, better hook them. And and so that's what I help. I do the creative on that. And that, you know, my last one was called Mental Health and the Orgasm: Treat Your Depression Single Handedly. <laughs> I I didn't see a link for that one. I'll have to check well, that one out. <laughs> no, it never went up. They wouldn't oh. put it up. I don't know why. Uh, well, I can but, think of a few possible reasons, but I don't know yeah, what was so, in there. So <laughs> can I. But but the um, thing is, I applied sixteen different times, sixteen times, sixteen different events. I knew, because I knew most people who saw that would just go, "No, there's no way." 
And, but whoever whoever saw it and liked it would probably really like it. And they did. They loved it. They, I got a standing ovation. I was I was the hit of the event. And then Ted.com, the big Ted, A, they wouldn't put it up. B, they wouldn't tell me why. And I'm like, mm. just edit it. I don't care what you cut out. Just put it up. So anyway. Well, one, one day we'll get the lost footage, hopefully. <laughs> well, I'm going to contact the TEDx committee, the uh, TEDx Durango, and say, look, are you guys going to do another TEDx? And if they say no... Well, how about how about send me my footage and I promise I'll put it on Venmo. I won't put it up on YouTube. Nobody will ever know. Or or if you're going to have it again, then damn it, I spent money and time. Have me back to do another one. You know, make them feel bad. <laughs> so now have you – you do – I know cruise ships, corporate comedy. Have you always done – I mean that's all clean comedy I assume. Right. Oh Lord, yeah! Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you got people like you know kids from eight to adults at eighty. Have you always done clean comedy, or did when you started out, or or have you just kind of shifted as a a good career move? No, actually, I started out clean. Uh, oh, I started good. out the com- comedy store in San Diego, and I was the only guy there who wore coat and tie because I had very much influenced by Letterman, so I always blazer tie, uh, very southern jeans, weeds, no socks and clean topical material. And matter of fact, the improv opened up across town, so I waited 30 days for all the other open micers to go in there. And then I tried in one night, signed up, do my little five minute clean topical political set, and the owner of the club comes up and goes, you wanna be house MC? Uh, which was my plan, because you know most comics, they just pick up whatever's on the floor that's not too dirty and put it back on and go to the comedy club. And I dressed on purpose, I had stationary envelopes, business cards. So, but yeah, I, I had a very brief, dirty period, but I was in Vegas, and an old guy, old comic, I, you know, probably 70, been there, probably opened up for Sinatra and that kind of thing. He comes up to me after my set, he goes, hey, kid, you need to quit doing the dirty stuff. You don't have the face for it. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. And here's a dirty little secret about clean comedy. It pays so much better. I've heard. <laughs> yeah. You know, cruises, I made 2500 bucks a week. And then corporate gigs, as a comedian, I was making five grand a night for a 45 minute set. You know, that's that's 10 nights uh, for a good headliner on the road in a club. And, right. and you put you up in nice hotels every now and then, just for fun. I will. If I'm staying in the Phoenician or some really nice hotel. Before I drag my bag through, I open the door, take a photograph of the room, and then post it on Facebook and say, look, if you, comics, if you're my age, if you're in your 60s and you're still doing clubs, you may be doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm coming to Florida oh, yeah? next week. Uh-huh. Uh, March 3rd, I'll be at uh, Marco Island. And... They're flying. Uh, they're paying my travel. They give, usually nowadays they give you travel buyout. They give me a grand for travel to cover my air and ground, which is you know, I mean, that's, that's I've got flights left over from last year because you know they extended the cancellation period. Right. So, so I'll pocket that. But but they pay your travel and they put you up in nice hotels and you know you're kind of a special guest because you're the star of the show and and they're they're happy to see you and they treat you. Yeah, I just I really enjoy the corporate. And it pays now. Now I charge more money um, because I'm doing the suicide prevention speaking. So I actually have content takeaways. You know, I teach them something. Right. So yeah. So but being a, to answer your question, long answer, short question, 
the clean comedy because I had done clean comedy in the clubs. Clubs started to close. I thought, you know what? I can do the rubber chicken circuit and do the after dinner, after lunch comedy, and immediately bought my feet to five grand plus travel. That was the the first thing uh, a, a comedian told me was develop a clean act if you want to ever make money. <laughs> that is straightforward. Yeah. It's and it's really more. The more I think about it, it's easy to go on stage. And I'm I'm a beginner at all of this stuff, and I'm starting at an old age, so I have no delusions of ever, you know, fully making it a career. But it's very easy. I can do a five-minute set where I just talk about penis for five minutes, yeah, well, mine, other people's, and and they'll laugh. But oh yeah, you know that it's almost cheap. Clean comedy, you really have to have more substance. You can't have the the poo poo pee pee type comedy just to get cheap cheap laughs. You have to yeah, well, be intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was working with Seinfeld, and he said, "Yeah, the thing about dirty comedy is the ideas are not doing the heavy lifting. The dirty, the dirty words are doing the heavy lifting." Right. Uh, clean comedy takes—I mean, it takes more. The dirty jokes just occur to me. I don't even have to think. Right. I was working a cruise ship, Carnival, early in the morning. I'm, I haven't even had my first cup of coffee yet. I'm walking across the the pool deck on the way to the Lido. There's a young man coming toward me. Must weigh 300 pounds, three feet tall, three feet wide, 300 pounds. <laughs> He's got he's got a tray full of breakfast. I mean, just piled high, and one set of silverware. I can see it. And he's wearing a, he's wearing a sweatshirt that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? And without even thinking, I thought to myself, he'd have an effing salad. <laughs> uh, I mean, it just popped into my head. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that that is a good good way to to think about it, and it's and I appreciate it now. I've got you know uh, my daughter's turning eleven next week, and my son's eight, so I can actually watch you know like Jim Gaffigan or Nate Bargatze. Yeah, it, and, and Nate Bargatze is he's a brilliant joke writer and totally clean, and it's it, it's it's not. You know, I enjoy it. They enjoy it. So I've kind of gained an appreciation over the past few years for how how difficult it is and how how enjoyable it is. It, you don't have to talk about sex or cuss to be funny. No, uh, and and that's in the corporate world. I, every now and then, a media planner would say to me, "We're paying you five thousand dollars for just forty five minutes of jokes," and I go, "No, a couple things. One, you're not paying me for forty five minutes of jokes." You're paying me for seven years of beer bars, pool halls, honky-tonks, and drunk idiots screaming, tell us some jokes we can dance to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you're not paying me for the jokes I tell. You're paying me for the jokes I don't tell, so when I get done with my job, you still have a job. <laughs> that resonates with the meeting planner. I, I like that a lot. And I, yeah, I, by the way, Brian Regan is another great clean comic. Yes. Um, I worked with him in Atlanta, met his family. My roommate from college, my, my fraternity brother and roommate from college, came and saw Brian Reagan. And it, this is classic Brian Reagan. And he thought it was hysterical. His wife didn't get any of it. It's, he's one of those guys, you get it or you don't. There's no in-between with Brian. Yeah. Well, if they, if that, it's good to build a, a, a niche like that, though. I mean, it's one of my favorite comics is, uh, is Doug Stanhope. And oh, he, Lord, he, man. he doesn't market to a ton of people. <laughs> it's, no. it's hard to, uh, you know, a lot of times you're pulling up clips with your friends and, uh, and just looking at funny clips. It's like, yeah, I should probably skip the Stanhope ones because they might not get it and they might judge me for it. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, he's blowing cocaine up some prostitute's hooter. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's like watching Bill Burr. I mean, I love him to death, but I wouldn't sit with him down and watch with my mom. Um, right. Well, and, and you know, that's funny. My mom, uh, she she always says, uh, you know, well, I can't support you because I can't. I'm like, no, you couldn't go see what I do on stage and my podcast now. She, she said, I really want to listen, but I can't listen to dirty stuff. So I put now in the bottom of my uh, description, I put safe for mom. If it's if oh, I don't talk cute. about sex or uh, or drugs or anything like that, and she of course texted me and said, "You said the f word." <laughs> so uh, and and you notice I said um, f you because I thought maybe <laughs> I, I never assume that you can get away with it on a podcast until somebody goes, "No, no, that, you can say whatever you like." Oh, you, you you can say whatever you like because I I, <laughs> okay. I say it, but uh, yeah, I. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my mom's plea was, well, try not to if you don't need to. I'm like, well, it was part of a story. It's, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I can't leave I it can, out of a story. <laughs> I, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, the, because I'm in Leo, I have, I have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. And I, I believe that I'm not broken. I was made this way. And it's simply the flip side of my creativity and imagination, the way I think. Because I can teach you to write stand-up, perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the way I did. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I'm in a club, Charlie Goodnight's in Raleigh. There's a young woman down front getting drunker and drunker and giving me a hard time all entire my entire set. Finally, they decide they got to throw her out. So she's on her way out the door. She stops. She turns back to me. She must have heard something sound like her name because drunk's her voice activated. And she screams, fuck you. <laughs> and I went, no, not even for practice. <laughs> and the audience goes nuts. Uh, I was on Carnival. Now, Carnival, the late show, they come for a verbal fist fight. They want to take the comic down. I've got oh. friends who won't work that run from San Pedro down the Mexican Riviera and back. You know, the three, four, and seven-day cruises because that's what they want at the late show. They want to come after the comic. So I'm on stage. I grab the mic. I haven't said a word. And the guy in the front row screams, You suck! And, you know, you can't let that kind of thing go. And I have no idea where this came from. But I said to him, yeah, you fucking swallow. And, again, guys coming up on stage high-fiving me 45 seconds into the show. Couldn't do any wrong after that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's there's something about my brain that just, it just, people ask me, how would you think that up? I didn't think it. You heard it. I heard it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my brain just served that up. It just came out of my mouth. Uh, 95% of the time, that's great. It lands perfect. Everybody loves you. About 5% of the time, it's just like, bam. You know, whatever it was, just, yeah. So, anyway, sorry, Mom, about the F word. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 my biggest concern is if I, if I ever get out of just doing open mics, haven't had to deal with a heckler because nobody... I mean, I haven't encountered heckling at an open mic yet, so I'm I'm hoping I'll I'll be quick on my feet in that uh, <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, it's you know, it's what you ought to do is I would memorize some stock heckler lines. I um, mean, here's the thing about heckling. Remember when Michael Richards dropped the N word and a comedy club? The problem is he's not a comic; he's a comic actor. No comic right. would ever do that because he went right to the nuclear option from scratch. Right. You have to. It's it's, it's sort of like um, uh, an escalation. Um, uh, you know, you you up armor the worst. For example, uh, I was on a cruise ship and there's a guy drunk down front. And it was right after the Michael Richards thing, and so somebody asked me about Michael Richards from the audience because I talked to the audience quite a bit. 
And then this guy help, helpfully heckled me. And I said, well, let me show you how this works. Um, if somebody heckles you, at that point in time, it's the audience and the comedian. So it's you and them. So when you, when the person heckles the first time, you got to be very gentle. Leno used to go, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, we don't have a microphone for everybody. <laughs> That's very gentle. And, yeah. and, and, and now if he heckles again, and the guy fired up again, like on cue. And I said, okay, watch how this works. I said, sir, do I come down to McDonald's and like the French fries out of your hand when you're trying to make a living? <laughs> and I said, now, see, we're, we're ramping it up a little bit each time. And then Vinny came after me again. I said, look, you need to save your breath so when you get back to your cabin, you can blow up your date. <laughs> and helpfully, he heckled again. And I said, okay, here's where you use a nuclear option. I go, sir, do I come down to the bus station and knock the dicks out of your mouth when you're trying to make a living? <laughs> Then security dragged him off. Um, but that's what you do as a comedian. You can't, because because after two or three heckles, the audience is on your side. The guy's becoming irritating. He's ruining the show. Right. So now it's not you and them. It's you and him. And they're screaming at him, shut the fuck up. That's what you want. You want the, you want the audience to work to shut the guy down. Right, that makes sense. Good, good strategy. So, yeah, well, that's that's thirty five years of stand up. <laughs> True, I'm I'm taking as much uh, experience from you as I can as uh, moving forward. But I I want well, I, I got a couple oh, couple cool. suggestions. Yeah, um, I would buy I would buy Judy's Judy Carter's book if you haven't called the Comedy Bible. The okay. most recent one, I think, last October, the newest edition, and it's. She walks you through almost filling the blank, creating an act based on your life. She'll have you do a brain dump like, um, okay, write down, start with the first thing you can remember. And then for 30 minutes, just write, you know, and try, try to make it chronological. And then she, she talks about, okay, now let's go in there and find the premises. And then let me show you how you construct a punchline. And each punchline is either hard, stupid, crazy, or there's one more. That's what you're looking for when you have the setup. <clears throat> for example, the neighborhood I grew up in, I was the only boy. There's like 11 girls. So what's hard about that is when we played doctor, because I was the only doctor, it was more like, there was always a line. It was more like playing HMO. <laughs> so that's kind of thing she works you, walks you through taking your real experience and then figure out what's hard, what's stupid, what's crazy, what's scary about that experience, and that's where the joke comes from. Hmm. So, so yeah, anyway, if you get a chance, I'd buy the comedy Bible and work your way through it. It's a great... Second thing is, at your age, how old are you? I just turned 34. <clears throat> okay, I would do clubs to get your chops. But I don't know what industry you've worked in, but... Uh, insurance. <laughs> oh, well, the thing about insurance is, because I sold insurance right out of college... They, insurance companies, insurance associations of Florida, insurance agents association, whatever, they all have annual meetings. They all have money. They all use outside speakers. And since you sold insurance, you speak the language. So I would recommend that you you work on two careers. Your stand-up in clubs and then doing corporate comedy. Your stand-up in, you know, to insurance companies, associations, whatever. Because you can do them simultaneously. Right. Yeah, and, and where are you? Where are you in Florida? I live in St. Petersburg. Okay, there's got to be a chapter, of the National Speakers Association, somewhere near you. Every state has one or two, depending on how big the state is. 
National Speaker Association. I would, I'm not going to go to a meeting. Go to the, you know, like the North Florida chapter or the South Florida, whatever, whatever, National Speaker Association, whatever chapter's closest by. They meet once a month. They have a, somebody like me come in. And I, and I would do in the morning four hours on how do you get a TEDx. In the afternoon, there'd be some guy talking about how do you put your video demo together for corporate comedy. Hmm. So every month is a different element of the business of the speaking business. And that's how I went from club comic to corporate comic. I joined the NSA, National Speaker Association, to learn the vernacular and the pricing and to network with other speakers. Right. And I'm, I'm currently, I've been a member of five chapters around the country, and I'm currently in the Oregon chapter right now. So I just, just you know, at 34, you know. It's a little late uh, to get but, in the game. <laughs> yeah, yes. But the good news is, you can, you know, if you, if you do corporate comedy, the, I mean, I, Last January in February, I thought it was going to be twenty twenty was going to be my year. <laughs> my my fee range is seventy five hundred to fifteen thousand, and I haven't made fifteen yet. But I made ten grand for a keynote in January and ten grand for a keynote in February, and nobody knows who the fuck I am. <laughs> so you can make a really good living, and nobody has any idea who you are. Which is which is actually perfect. It's not. <laughs> I, I I'd rather be under the radar. Although I guess they they maybe tried to cancel you a little bit <laughs> this year. Oh yes. Oh god. Oh, get this. A guy called me up and said, "We're gonna we're gonna make sure you never work in a comedy club again." And I said, "Can I get that in writing?" <laughs> well, look look at the bright side. If you were as famous as Bill Burr, maybe you would never work. <laughs> no. No. It's uh, yeah. So. I don't care about, you know, I could care less about clubs, but, and just uh, one last piece of advice. Corporate comedy pays well, but if you can teach them something, if you have life lessons, you know, the hero's journey. Sure. Judy, Judy Carter would tell you, people want to hear your messes and stresses and then your success. So if you've got wisdom to impart, you've got takeaways for the audience, then you're a you're not a funny speaker. You're a speaker who's funny, and that pays, you know, uh, pays probably one and a half times what a comic makes, corporate oh. comic makes, at least one and a half times. So that's the benefit. And then I've niched my business to suicide prevention. I've picked four or five industries where they have a high rate, so I've niched my marketing. So once you niche yourself like that, the, they say, and I say, the riches are in the niches, and it's true. You want to be that guy, you know, that funny suicide prevention speaker guy. Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, Ed, not to, not, I'm not blowing smoke or anything, but I think what you're doing is, is, I, I mean, it's amazing. Again, Actually, I, I made a note here to tell people who are listening to my podcast to press pause, which is probably stupid, like from a marketing standpoint, press pause and go watch at least one of your TEDx talks before, because, and the one that I, I actually sent this to a bunch of people yesterday was the born to be funny one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not kidding. I, I watch tons of stand up. I, I don't watch a lot of TEDx talks, but I'm probably going to start now. Uh, but I literally had my jaw fall, which doesn't happen no matter how, when a few things you talked about, I'm like, I, the, uh, I, I wrote down, I probably won't pronounce it as well as you did, the chronic suicidality. Yes. I I have, and it's not even meaning, and I should make this clear for people who are listening to me so they don't all come to my house and think I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I have literally, and, it, and you're 
example was with a car and I literally was in that scenario four years ago where my engine blew out on the on the highway I was barely able to to get it off to the side of the road and you know it's I'm at the shop they say the engine shot this car yeah you're done and I've told some people and then you start getting 50 people because then I had to have someone from work come pick me up so I could you know go to work that day and everyone in the office is telling me you should do this you should do that and I'm literally thinking, well, I, I could get a new engine to put in the car. I could buy a new one or I could kill myself. That's a decent option. And yeah, and I wasn't not... suicidal in the moment, but that is always yeah. big or small how my brain has actually functioned. And I never thought, and again, I know you've heard this from so many people. I've never thought another human being could possibly think that way. Yeah, oh yeah, that's that's um, that is one of the most rewarding things. Every time I've spoken since 2014 or trained, there's been one person in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation, and they don't know it has a name, and they think they're just some kind of freak, completely alone. And I mean, I had a young woman come up here at college. She goes, "Thanks for your keynote." I said, "You're welcome." She goes, "But I got to tell you, it made me weep." How did it make you weep? She goes, "Well, you know your story about the car. You know, get it fixed by a new, and just kill yourself." She goes, I've had those thoughts all my life. I thought it was just me. I'm some kind of freak all alone. When I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life, I am not alone, and I wept. Yeah. Now, that is my why. That's my purpose and my passion. It's, I mean, and sometimes it's more than one person in the audience. Um, and, it, yeah, so that's that. I feel sort of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Because, <laughs> you know... Because I've been shown how, what these people's lives might be like, like your life might be like, if I wasn't there to go, hey, Jeff, it's a thing. Um, you're yeah. not by yourself. Because if I kill myself, now I can't kill myself because if I did, people like you, I'd take you with me because you never had a chance to hear me say that and assure you you're not alone. So, yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it. Um, it's, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah, and, and it's it's really again. I don't mean to 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 blow smoke up your ass so much, but it's amazing that you're the first person who's probably ever verbalized that. If if you think about it, because it has to be you, law of averages. You have to think there's thousands, if not millions, of people oh, yeah. who think similarly. Well, and I've had clinicians when I said chronic suicidal ideation or chronic suicidality, they stare. At me like what because it's not in the dsm the diagnostic whatever it is statistical manual that sure. has all the diseases mental diseases it's not in there yet so they some people have no idea what i'm, t- what I'm talking about clinicians um well so, and I, and, yeah I, I think that's a problem too is too many so i've gone i mentioned and i want to ask you uh, what worked for you honestly to an extent but i've gone to several therapists throughout my life because I've dealt with with uh you know not not being happy and at times thinking I'd be better off committing suicide and uh most of them first of all I I feel like it's hard to be honest with them because oh yeah you 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 know I've lived even though I've not been a road comic I've had moments in my life I got divorced at 27 and I had never done anything I was a choir boy aside from drinking up to that point uh, well, and getting her pregnant uh, in college. <laughs> but well, okay, yeah, there, there is that. Aside from those things, 
Um, when my when my now ex wife left me, I kind of went off a, a, a deep end and did some some crazy and, and dirty things. And I I feel like well I can't start with a therapist by telling them that. And then they also always seem to they love to just turn it to to blame this, which is oh the alcohol yeah I get it and I get it it's a depressant but in honesty I would say many times. What saved my life when I've had bad thoughts is let me just drink, put on a sitcom, and let my brain sleep, and not it won't feel anymore. And I don't I, again, I'm not a therapist. That may be terrible advice, but I, I feel like there is an issue with people getting help sometimes because of things like yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, um, having a, having a cocktail and watching a sitcom, a cocktail or two. I mean, it is a solution. It's not a good long term solution. Sure. But as a friend of mine would say, you know, uh, it quiets the voices in my head for a while. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly it. Now the one <laughs> I wanted to touch on. Um, uh, I, I have a, a list here <laughs> that I'll try to get through quickly. Um, I had I had something to add to your list. Yeah, I love that you said here's not here's what not to say to someone who's oh. suicidal, uh, yeah. or or depressed. And and I've had this said to me by probably a dozen people who all meant well. They all love me. And oh yeah. They, they knew I was down, and they've said, and I don't think this was on your list, is think of how many people have it worse than you. Oh. <laughs> and I'm just like, so I'm just a weak pussy. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah it, the, flip, the, the flip side of that is, you, but you have so much to live for. Okay, look, it's not situational. Um, I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. Money in the bank, mortgage paid off, bookings on the calendar, just wretchedly depressed. It's just a cycle with me. It's um, that's what major depressive disorder is. It's like a, a wheel with a flat spot. Every now and then, the flat spot comes around. Last three days for me, and the danger there, Jeff, is if you don't have life experience as we do dealing with this, and you all of a sudden are depressed. People who are depressed tend to live in the moment, right in the immediate, and exactly. they're thinking this will never, ever be any better, and that's a dangerous thought. I know, I know in three days, 72 hours, it'll ease up and I'll be fine. We just have to buckle down and ride it out. But if you don't have experience like that, or if you if you have the thought, get it fixed by a new one, I could just kill myself, like, oh, shit, what was that? Where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, Again, that's, that's part of what I do is to educate people, both normal and not so normal, about those kind of thoughts and things so that, you know, they're not surprised by them or threatened by them. What's what would you say has because obviously if if, if people have watched the, the TEDx talk they know you you were had a gun in your mouth and aside from an insurance policy uh, keeping you alive basically uh, if it was yeah, two months later in the calendar you wouldn't be here is is yeah, kind of the way I heard that yeah because we had a two year suicide clause and right. I only had the policy twenty two months so I I wasn't gonna leave my wife broke and I'm sorry broken hearted and broke. So I had to wait to kill myself, which is fine because I, you know, that's, I still, you know, with chronic suicidality, a friend of mine said, if, I, if it weren't for my chronic suicidality, I'd have killed myself a long time ago. Because <laughs> suicide, a lot of people don't understand, it's, a, it's not about so much about killing yourself, it's about ending the pain. Mm -hmm. And because I know I can do it any moment, I can stand a great deal of pain because I know I can make it come to an end. A friend of mine said, there's no good solution for that. And I go, yes, there is, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that's and I think and and in one of your your TEDx talks, you t- you touched on this, and I think you mentioned specifically CEOs, and I think comedians have a higher. A yeah. lot of comedians have a, a higher amount of that thinking too, and obviously, a lot of comedians have killed themselves or killed themselves with the amount of drugs and alcohol they've ingested to defeat the demon inside of them, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, self medication. Uh, as uh, not only comedians but other creatives, um, CEOs, uh, not so much just CEOs but entrepreneurs. Right. right. Um, yeah, it's, I, and again, they just did a. They were mapping the human genome. And they came across uh, that their their genes for intelligence and genes for depression overlap. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that people who have depression are actually more intelligent than people who are neurotypical on average. Um, and I think it, it in my talk on uh, mental with benefits, I tell the audience I'm not broken. I was made this way. This is the way you know. It's not it's not broke. And that that's what I try to. That talk is mostly for kids. If you can convince a child, look, you've got a mental disability, that's true, but here's what the adults never tell you. You've got some mental abilities your peers can't touch, so we need to embrace and enhance and energize those and then steer you in a career, on a career path where they, if you have OCD, you need to be working in an accounting firm, engineering, architecture, where they they appreciate, um, you know, attention to detail and precision, and they pay it according. There are... 30 Fortune 500 companies now that are hiring people on the spectrum for their special ability and mm-hmm. paying them handsomely. I, uh, I, my daughter actually is low level, but she's on the spectrum and she's aware of the diagnosis and everything. And sometimes she gets upset that she's labeled like that. And I, I, I've done a lot of research into it because, you know, it, it affects me. And I mean, I've read some good articles saying, to an extent, some of it is a is a enhancement of the brain. Like it's it's oh, yeah. functioning so much better than a normal human brain. So I I think it's I mean it's it's uh, you know who who knows what causes it, but I think irregularities in the brain, if harnessed, can almost always be used for your benefit. Uh, yeah, everybody I know is not completely dysfunctional with a mental illness has some superpower. I've got a client I'm helping get a TEDx. She's also an author and a speaker. And she's in the branding business. Spent 20 years on Madison Avenue in advertising. And so we're chatting back and forth. She goes, I need, you know, I need a title, I need a subtitle, I need a tagline. I go, okay, I'll sleep on it. Next morning I wake up, I texted her a title, a subtitle, and a tagline. And she wrote back, holy shit. <laughs> She goes, I worked on Madison Avenue for 30 years. One of the hardest jobs in advertising is copywriting, and you can do it in your fucking sleep. <laughs> Literally in my sleep. <laughs> and I think that's that's just part of the wiring. It's just like I put that idea in my head that I need this when I go to bed. And I wake up next morning. I lie there in the dark, sometimes for an hour, just letting my mind go here and there and uh, bubbles, whatever. Another client is he teaches what they call soft skills, um, emotional intelligence, communication, and so forth. Because I need a tagline. I go, okay, I'll talk to you in the morning. So I wake up, send him a text. Anthony Metton is his name. So the tagline is Anthony Metton, soft skills, concrete results. (laughs) He goes, holy shit, how do you do that? I don't know. It's actually amazing you said that because I have worked 
the reason I even started doing stand up and, and this is because the thing that kind of interested me was I, I wrote a couple screenplays and both of them now they're not completed fully, but both of them came to me in dreams in my actually in my and I've had people say, I'm kind of jealous that you just other people stay up thinking of ideas. You sleep and you get work done. I'm like, it, 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 it comes. They're all very dark comedies, but it's yeah. But it, it's, you know, and until she said that, I didn't, well, no, that's not true. I worked at Cumulus Radio, uh, Cumulus Radio Cluster one summer when the when the cruise ships decided not to use variety entertainers for a summer. And, you know, you, I, the, the, for some strange reason, they don't have copywriters anymore at radio stations. They have the sales executive write copy, which is just nuts. But anyway, um, my boss said, look, you know, you use this veterinarian. Would you mind writing a testimonial? Uh, script for a 60 second spot so I go okay so I went home that night slept on it woke up cranked out a 60 second spot printed it out took it into her and she goes uh is this a first draft I go yeah she goes oh hell I thought I could write copy uh, <laughs> and 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 we did the commercial and I voiced it because I took five years of voiceover in LA so I voiced it and then I'm in the veterinarian's office like three months later with one of our animals. And I go, hey, how's it going? They go, well, we're having to add the staff and it's your fucking fault. <laughs> Why is it my fault? That commercial you wrote about your cat Snotty Dotty? We have people calling you every day. I want the same vet as Snotty Dotty. <laughs> Perfect. Unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, again, it's just, you know, it's just the way my mind, you know, I can't, I can't t- the example I give normal people is this. Ever been in a movie theater and it's a comedy and something happens on the screen and you laugh and you stop laughing and you realize, wait a minute, I was the only one laughing because you're the only one that got it. That's kind of how my brain works all day long. It's, it's always after the funny, like you, like you got whatever's on the screen. Nobody else in the theater got it. Yeah. But that's, that's how it is. You know, I, I the punchlines just occur, you know, the woman was talking to me on the phone. She goes, I met Brian Williams from MSNBC about 10 years ago. And, and uh, she goes, we actually went out, and he is so small. And I said, you're talking about height, right? <laughs> <laughs> she goes, you bastard. I go, I'm sorry. That's just the way my mind works. That would have been my question, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, so it's it's... I think we can reduce stigma by impressing upon everybody that, you know what, it, well, my new, if, it's time if I told you this already, um, my TED Talk on in June is going to be on depressive realism. Did we talk about that? No, no, no. Okay, depressive realism, there is some science, more every day, that people with depression see the world more accurately than people who are neurotypical or neuronormal. Uh, who may be, you know, seeing it the way they wish it were through rose-tinted glasses. Sure. So, again, again, the idea of that is turn depression from a disability to the ability to see the world more clearly. You know, maybe we are depressed because it's the world sucks. <laughs> and we're the only ones that realize it. That's, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that. It seems... That's, uh, yeah. And well, the, the only exception I have is I'm always super optimistic about my sports teams. <laughs> well, I'm an optimistic, I'm a, I'm a realistic, a realistic optimist or an optimistic realist, one of the two. 
Um, you know, it's, I mean, I, I am, I'm probably the, the most positive suicidal person you'll ever meet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my, 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 the speaker's bureau called me about going to Marco Island. When you get on a plane to fly to Florida on March 3rd in the middle of a pandemic, I go, I'm fucking suicidal. What do I care? <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably the only speaker you've got who's willing to do that. Yeah, well, so, we, Florida's had the fortune since we've been open so long. We all, we can actually attract some comedians, not like high-level ones, but <laughs> we can attract well, some know, comedians because they can actually perform and make a few bucks. <laughs> well, in Florida, there, I, was, I saw an article the other day, a headline, the five worst states for COVID right now, I'm thinking, oh, God, Florida's got to be. No, Florida wasn't in there. I can't remember what they were, but Florida was not among them. No, well, like we talked about earlier, it's about headlines and, and all that gar. They they showed a video after the Bucks won the Super Bowl, and the Bucks are the only local team I'm not a fan of, of course. But they they showed a video of people partying in the streets, and everyone oh, t- Florida's about to all die from COVID. Our numbers have just gone straight down from there. So yeah, it's it like should, it's, it should have been a super spreader event, but apparently it wasn't. No, well they were all outdoors, and that seems to kind of. That, that does mitigate the damage, and yeah. you know what? I'm going to our gym. Uh, my gym just opened back up today, and I'm oh, really? going to wear my mask and go to the gym. I can't wait. And but you know what? The gym is probably far more dangerous for me than a plane, because everybody in the gym is breathing hard, you know, and pumping out, you know. And I wear my mask, um, but uh, yeah, I just I, and I get the shot. I get the vaccine eventually. Um, my wife will get it first. She's a cashier, so she's like a frontline worker. But, uh, yeah, it's – anyway, it's been – when I go – when I perform on March 3rd, it'll be 356 days since my last live performance. It's amazing to me that uh survived a year, um, that's, you know, without um, – That's something. It's uh, – I – So next question, uh, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the only – the last thing, I know I don't have you much longer – um, I, I, and I, I just wanted to bring this up. I'll try to be quick. I loved how the other thing that I've heard people say about me is the dark passenger thing. I've, I actually oh. have, have had people say, now the funny thing is, so I filmed the video where I was, the premise of the whole thing was I was sober to introduce the topic. It was about the Dyatlov Pass incident. It's kind of an unsolved mystery thing. Then a couple hours later, I got drunk and I tried to learn about it and figure out what happened as I was drinking. And then at the end, I woke up the next morning and I I soberly reviewed my footage because I didn't remember a lot of it. And I kind of recapped it. And people pointed out several times in the intro, in the especially while I was drinking, and and then in the outro, I referred to him as the other guy. Like I would, I don't know if you watch Marvel, but like Hulk and Bruce Banner, I was like. I was blackout drunk, honestly, at this point, and I said, I'll let the smart guy clear this up tomorrow. I can't figure it out. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're like, you've, you've really uh, got a problem. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I'm not expecting you to diagnose that. I, I No, but, you know, that's you saw my, probably saw the slide where I put up the picture that yes. the photographer took as part of an art project where he, he said, and for the audience, I'll tell them. He said, look, um, let them see something behind your eyes. Try to project something. So I thought, all right, I'll show you something. So for the first time in my life, I let the, um, the that part of my brain, part of my whatever that's trying to kill me, shine through my eyes. 
he snapped the picture and damned if he didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, and I call him my, I said, with apologies to the Showtime series, Dexter, we're just coming back. I can't wait. Is, uh, that's my dark pastor. Only I, unlike Dexter, I'm not, I'm not out to kill other people. I'm just out to kill myself. <laughs> yes. Big difference. Big difference. Big <laughs> difference. Yeah. The, uh, but yeah, I, I, so I refer to that, that part of my personality as an other. And that's, I don't think that's unusual with people with mental illness. There's that, uh, di- you know, that division. Sure. Uh, sure. So that. I'm looking for, uh, you mentioned the Hulk, and I I actually um, created an avatar. When I speak to young people, I say, you should pick a superhero, one you like or one that has similar issues that you have, and customize it. Uh, can you see the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's blue because, you know, depressed. You're and, right, uh, right. No, that's, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, because you know, I said to my wife, "Look, you know, when I'm happy and things are going well, I'm kind of professorial, you know. Uh, and then when I get mad, I just roar." And she goes, "The Incredible Hulk." I go, "Yeah, but I'm I'm the Incredible Sulk." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, yeah. Don't piss don't piss uh, the professor off. <laughs> don't want to make me angry. <laughs> no. Well, and I had a death threat when um I did when we were talking about coming back from Cambodia. A guy called me up because he thought I dragged that. Well, two guys called me actually. Thinking I had dragged the virus, the corona, back to the county. The first guy goes, um, "You came back to Lane County to kill everybody." I said, "No, I've got a list, and you're on the VIP section now." And the second guy called. And he goes, "I know where you work out. I know when you work out. I'm coming to kill you." And I said, Jesus. "Well, first of all, you should know I've been trying to do that for 40 years and I haven't been successful." So, <laughs> and I said, second, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, I don't want to die, but I'm not frightened of it. So just Put that into your calculations before you get in the car to come over. Do you really want to take on a guy who has absolutely nothing to lose? <laughs> and and show him the picture of yourself from earlier yeah. that you showed me. Exactly. Jesus. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> yeah, you sure? There's a TV series called um, Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Yes. And I think somebody on the staff where Ricky has chronic suicidal ideation. Yes. That's why. Because in the second episode, his boss is trying to cheer him up, and Ricky goes, Look, don't try to cheer me up. I'm depressed. I'm suicidal. If things get really bad, I'll just kill myself. It's kind of my superpower. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Holy shit, that's not a normal thought. The next episode, two kids try to rob him at knife point, and they go, Give us your wallet. And he goes, Well, what if I don't? We're going to kill you. Well, you know, for most people, that would be an inducement to hand over my wallet, but <laughs> can't, I can't tell you how many times I've had that fantasy. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, give me your wallet, I'm going to shoot you. Oh, come on. Really? Man, if I'd known that I was going to die on this day at this time, death by dumbass, I could have just relaxed and waited for it. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you one last thing, uh, just because of that. I once, in, in one week, I opened my mailbox and there was a frog inside, and I screamed and ran away like a little girl. Later that week... I was downtown St. Pete, and some guy came up to me and flashed his gun and said, give me 20 bucks for meth or I'll shoot you, and I didn't flinch. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so so the frog scared me to death, but the actual death was like, nah, well, let's see what happens here. <laughs> well, and that's Sun Tzu. You do, you do exactly what the whoever's attacking you does not expect the complete op you know like i said i'm gonna kill you i've been trying to do that 40 years good luck yeah. 
the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Actually, it yeah. teaches you a good way to respond to hecklers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'll leave you with this. We had a wildfire this summer. I mean, 177,000 acres. And a big windstorm, power pole, power towers went down. Wind was whipping at 50 miles an hour. I mean, we were evacuated. Um, the fire was fire came within a mile and a quarter the first day. And so there's a level one, level two, level three. Level one is get ready. Level two is get set. Level three is go. Don't look back. Don't grab anything else. Just get the fuck out of the neighborhood. So I'm downtown. It's level one. Figuring I got time to get home. Level two, you know, get all the cats and everything in carriers and get them over to the, you know, the place where they'd be safe. Well, it went from level one to level three. Fuck. So... <laughs> Everybody else is driving out of the neighborhood because the fire's a mile and a quarter away. I'm driving into the neighborhood to rescue the cats. Uh, a friend of mine goes, you could have been killed. I go, look, dude, I'm <laughs> suicidal. If I'm going to go, it's going to be doing something spectacular like, why did he drive back into the fire to save the kikis? <laughs> yeah, and then he goes, well, you could burn to death. I go, no fucking way. I've got a gun. <laughs> the, fire, the fire is licking my toes I'm not dying burning up that is no way to go I'll put that gun in my mouth and take care of it myself of course when you say that to normal people they do get a little frightened um, <laughs> go too well hey that's just and I made a video on the way out of the neighborhood because I wasn't sure I was going to make it out I got the cats in the back you can hear me out away I'm going look I'm in the neighborhood it's level three the fires you know the smoke's getting worse the fires mile and a quarter away I'm not sure I'm gonna make it out so I wanted to record a video you know tell my wife I love her my sister tell my brother-in-law I still hate him um, <laughs> and and I'm crying because you know I'm, I'm just and it's about two and a half minutes and uh, I put it up on YouTube and it got like 2500 views like that and people wrote me and go man I watched the thing twice I'm just crying but we made obviously we made it out but I wouldn't Oh, I am so angry at my equipment. I'm not sure why it shut off, but cut off the last probably 10 minutes. There's another great story in there. Uh, but ultimately, I, I hope uh, this did a good job of combining comedy with kind of uh, a serious, serious topic. Um, I mean... He kind of has inspired me to be a little more open about my personality, as you've probably heard and may have been surprising to some people. I don't know. Um, I think I think removing the taboo about having depression and suicidal thoughts is so important. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, part that got cut was how he mentioned how the vast majority of suicides are men, uh, you know, being being the rough and tough, you know, pull, your, up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh, it's just, uh, it's something that uh, the taboo needs to be removed. You can be a tough guy and, and battle bad thoughts in your head. And if you're anything like Frank, you use them to do wonderful things uh, for, you know, not just make people laugh, but honestly, you know, prevent people from from uh, harming themselves. So I I've got a ton of links below. Please check out his stuff. His TEDx talks are, whether you're dealing with depression or suicide yourself, 
uh, or you're almost certain it's almost certain that you know someone who is um, those those uh, talks are invaluable and I guarantee you they save lives so check those out um, also if you've made it this far far please give me a follow um, you know the more listeners I have the more likely I am to get Amazing guests like Frank uh, without having to uh, threaten him with jail time. So thanks again. Uh, Peace.